This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's wonderful to see everybody here. My name is Dinah Wallen, and I'm here to talk to you about uh, pediatric poisonings. And our goal today is to make you guys aware of substances and items in your home which may be potentially hazardous to children and what makes them so dangerous. And it's going to be a little bit difficult for me not to have this be a super interactive talk. I prefer to have it that way, but since we're videotaping, I've been asked to hold our questions till the end. I'm going to try to pause at the end of every section just so you can collect your thoughts, and if you have any questions, please jot them down, because I'm very excited to hear any questions you might have and excited to answer them. So after this talk, you will be able to name several common medications that are particularly dangerous to children, describe risks of laundry detergent pods and edible marijuana in pediatric patients, and discuss other risky exposures in the home and how to prevent life-threatening illness or injury for kids. So by way of a little bit of background, poisoning is actually the leading cause of injury-related death in the United States, and kids are actually a lot more vulnerable to this. The reason why is that medications, both in a therapeutic way and in poisoning, are dosed in a milligrams per kilogram way. So I weigh about 80 kilograms, and so if I were to take an 800 milligram tablet, that would be a 10 milligram per kilogram dose for me. But if a 10 kilogram toddler took the exact same pill, they're getting an 80 milligram per kilogram dose. So if you think about it, their little tiny size makes them especially vulnerable to poisoning. And there are over 60,000 emergency department visits every year because kids get into household medications. This is a big problem. Just in 2015, the Poison Control Center managed 2.8 million cases, which averaged out to one phone call every 11 minutes. And of those 2.8 million cases, 59% of them were kids from 0 to 19 years old, and actually 47% of the calls were kids younger than 6. So 1.4 million cases of kids getting into things they shouldn't have gotten into. And this graph further illustrates that point a little bit. If you look and see, these are kids broken down by every year. So we see that ages 1, 2, and 3 are our highest uh, proportions. And if we look down here, this is broken up by decade, and it's still a power of 10 off. So children are disproportionately affected by poisonings in the United States. And not surprisingly, 80 to 85% of these cases are unintentional. This is actually a good thing because unintentional poisonings, in contrast to deliberate poisonings, are actually a lot less likely to need hospitalization or intensive care. So that's good. Pediatric poisonings also have what's called a bimodal distribution. So that means that there's two humps in incidence. The first hump is kids ages one to five. So that's what we really think of, little guys getting into pills that they're not supposed to get into. But that second hump is adolescents and teenagers. And that's where we start seeing deliberate poisonings and suicidal gestures and suicide attempts. Our risk factors for ingestion are ages one to four years old, male, hyperactive temperament, and increased finger-to-mouth activity. So anybody who has any experience with a preschooler, that's pretty much all of them, correct? So now you can see why we see that peak in the ages 0 to 3. It's very, very common. And looking in all ages, the top ingestions that we see are analgesics. So this category actually encompasses over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen and Tylenol, as well as prescription ones like Percocet or Vicodin. Cleaning substances, cosmetics, all of our downers, and some antidepressants. And then as we zoom in for kids younger than six, we see sort of a flipping around that again makes sense. So analgesics or cosmetics and personal care products, as well as cleaning substances, jump to the top, which makes sense because adults aren't really dabbling with cosmetics. Um, analgesics are still there. We see our foreign bodies and toys, and then topical preparations. But that's not quite the most interesting thing. What's actually killing kids? So if we look, these are our substance categories that are most commonly involved in deaths of children younger than five. And our analgesics skyrocket to the top, followed by batteries, fumes, gases, and vapors, stimulants and street drugs, and then unknown drugs. So that's like if a child was found with multiple different pills around and ended up dying, we can't really attribute the death to one specific thing. 
But what can we do about this? We know it's common. There's got to be a way that we can prevent these poisonings. So first of all, store chemicals, medicines, cleaning products up and away from the child's reach and sight. So reach is helpful. However, again, anybody who has experience with a toddler or a preschooler knows that they are very tenacious and very stubborn. And if they see something that they set their sights on, they're going to get it. So lock it away. Don't let them see it. Put medicines away every single time. Again, when you're sick or the child's sick, it's really easy to just try to leave medicines maybe on the bathroom counter or on your nightstand. Don't do it. That's when they get into them. Don't store chemicals in food containers or in the same cabinets as food. And I know that that seems intuitive, but as we're going to see later, it's not necessarily intuitive. Make sure your safety cap is locked. And I do want to emphasize here that child-resistant packaging does not equal child-proof. Child-resistant packaging just slows the kid down. Again, they are, they are stubborn, they want to get in there, and they will. Just hopefully you're going to catch them before they're able to get in there in time. Teach your kids about medication safety. Don't call medicines candy to try to get kids to take them. Tell them, this is medicine. It's really good for you. It's going to help your body be strong, but it can also be really dangerous if you take it when you're not supposed to. Teach your guests about medication safety. This is something that I see all the time. So grandparents or aunts, uncles, people from out of town are visiting, maybe even just for dinner. They put their purse down, their cosmetic case in the bathroom. They have their pills on the nightstand. And the kids are so excited that there's a new bag that they've never seen before and they get into it. Lastly, be careful to understand dosing for small children. So again, the fact that milligram per kilogram dosing is for children makes for a lot of math every time you're trying to give a medication to a small child. So confirm and then double and triple check your dosings so that you don't accidentally overdose the kid. I'm going to kick things off with a little game called Which is More Dangerous? And so I just want you to shout out in kind of a regular standard ingestion dose which one you think is more dangerous. All right, calamine lotion or a citronella candle? Yeah, yeah citronella. All right, Tylenol or shoe polish? Tylenol. Aspirin or household bleach? Aspirin. Ha-ha. Dishwashing liquid or a detergent pod? Pod, yep. Oil of wintergreen or hydrogen peroxide? Wintergreen, nailed it. Latex paint or a hint of vodka? Vodka. Visine eye drops or shaving cream? Eye drops, good job, you guys. So this table is actually in the handout that I have available to you online. This is a non-extensive list of a ton of things found around the home that are actually non-toxic. And so I want to draw your attention to a few things that we see over and over again. Antibiotics, not dangerous. Household bleach, and again, this is not industrial strength bleach, but the Clorox you would buy for your house, not dangerous. Um, calamine lotion, not too bad. Contraceptives and steroids, not bad. Fabric softener, not bad. Shampoos, shaving cream. So lots of things on here that you might have thought could be dangerous to a child but are actually pretty non-toxic. But again, that's not why you guys are here. You're here to hear about the things that are dangerous. And so now we're going to talk about some medications that are particularly dangerous to children. And I picked these medicines for three different reasons. One, they're very common, so you're pretty likely to have them in your home. Two, a lot of people don't realize that these medicines are very dangerous, so it might come as a surprise. And then three, because the dosing that can kill or severely injure a child is very small. Many of them are as small as one pill could be dangerous. To help us better conceptualize what the toxic dose is, we're going to use the example of a 10-kilogram toddler as demonstrated by my nephew, Jake, here. So we're going to keep circling back to Jake. So let's kick it off with a case. So this is an 18-month-old boy who gets brought into the emergency department for vomiting after his mom found him sitting on the floor surrounded by a ton of aspirin tablets. The baby was shaking the bottle happily in his hand, and she fished out several tablets from his mouth, but we're not really sure how much he actually took. So how dangerous is this, actually? Aspirin is part of a larger group of medications called salicylates. So aspirin is probably the most famous one, but salicylates are found in other analgesics, cold medications, Pepto-Bismol, and topical medications like Bengay. 
And the symptoms of overdose are just like what our kid had. So some vomiting, but also rapid breathing, ringing of the ears, and lethargy. And then that can rapidly progress to seizures, coma, swelling of the brain, and severe bleeding throughout the body. A lot of people who overdose on salicylates actually end up needing to get dialysis. It's a very serious poisoning. So what's our toxic dose? You're going to get some mild intoxication at 150 to 300 milligrams per kilogram and death at 500 milligrams per kilogram with mild symptoms sort of in between. So what does that mean for Jake? It means that he would have symptoms after he took four aspirin tablets. So a standard dose is 325 milligrams. And he could have severe symptoms or death after 9 to 15. So if you think about it, aspirin can be brightly colored. It looks like candy, maybe like a sweet tart. You could picture how a toddler could very easily get this amount of medicine into their mouth. So in conclusion, aspirin is actually dangerous. Even though it's very widely used to help prevent heart attacks and strokes, it's actually a pretty dangerous medication when taken in overdose. So lock it up especially if you have grandparents coming to visit the house or if you are the grandparent coming to visit the house, lock up your medications. Another salicylate I wanted to talk about was oil of wintergreen. So that's commonly used in baking, making candies for flavoring. And this contains 1.4 grams of aspirin per milliliter. We were talking about milligrams before with aspirin or seven and a half grams per teaspoon. So what that means for Jake is that he would get sick after two milliliters of this, which is less than half a teaspoon. And so I prepared a little sample. That's about two milliliters. Um, And he could die after 3.6 milliliters, which is just a little bit more than that and still under a teaspoon. So oil of wintergreen is a very, very potent toxin. So in conclusion, I would say just don't have it. If you have any possibility that there are going to be small children around your house or in your kitchen, it's far too potent of a toxin to have around. I'm going to move on to another case. So a normally very pleasant 13-year-old girl gets into a fight with her parents and storms upstairs and slams the door, and they don't hear from her for several hours until tearfully she comes knocking on their bedroom door and says that, When she was upset with them, she took a handful of Tylenol pills, but now she regrets it and wishes that she hadn't. So how dangerous is that? It probably is not that bad. It's available over the counter. So Tylenol, um, the generic name is acetaminophen, and acetaminophen is found in lots of different things, including cold medications like Dayquil and NyQuil, Excedrin, prescription pain medications like Vicodin and Norco. And the early symptoms of a Tylenol overdose are pretty nonspecific. So some nausea and vomiting, decreased appetite, pallor or paleness, and a little bit of confusion. But the thing that not a lot of people know is that acetaminophen is a very potent liver toxin. So several days later, it leads to jaundice with severe liver failure. When you progress to one or two ways, either you get a liver transplant or you die. So Tylenol poisoning is really no joke. The toxic dose is 200 milligrams per kilogram, which again is sort of hard to conceptualize. But for Jake, that's four tablets of Vicodin or standard Tylenol or 60 milliliters of Tylenol elixir. So that this is 60 milliliters, which that is a pretty high volume, I would say. But it tastes like bubble gum. It's bright pink. And if they were told it's candy and they found a bottle, there you go. You can see how a toddler would very easily drink that amount. So in conclusion... Tylenol isn't the benign medication that we think it is. So lock it up. Um, Also, make sure to carefully measure out doses to kids. I know I prescribe Tylenol pretty much to every child that sets foot into the emergency department. So it's a very commonly utilized medication. Just double, triple, quadruple check your dosing before you give it to kids. All right, take a moment, jot down any questions you might have about acetaminophen. We're going to move on to another case. So this one is a 14-month-old little girl who gets brought in by a frantic grandma because when the little girl woke up from her nap, all of a sudden she had new difficulty balancing. And in fact, when I go to see her, she's really pale and kind of sweaty. And every time she stands up, she falls over. She's not really responding to me. Grandma says, you know, come to think of it, a few hours ago, she was playing with grandpa's pill counter. So what on earth could she have gotten into? 
We're going to talk about a group of medications called the blockers, and this encompasses calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. So this category of medication is used most of the time to treat high blood pressure, but also can treat atrial fibrillation, which is a heart arrhythmia, and even migraines. So the calcium channel blockers include medicines like amlodipine, diltiazem, nifedipine, and verapamil. Beta blockers are atenolol, carvedilol, metoprolol, and propranolol. And how many people here have heard of somebody being on one of those kind of medicines? Yeah, they're pretty common, right? Because they're very effective. Um, also, I heard a great joke about beta blockers the other day. How do we know that beta blockers are funny? They all end in LOL. <laughs> so, thank you. So, symptoms of beta blocker overdose all stem from the low blood pressure and slow heart rate. So, we have dizziness, confusion, nausea, and vomiting. And again, those can progress to coma and seizures. You can have hypoglycemia or low blood sugar in a beta blocker overdose and hyperglycemia or high blood sugar in a calcium channel blocker overdose. And kids who have asthma can also have wheezing if they overdose on beta blockers. So our toxic dose really varies on medicines, but depending on your formulation, it really can be just as much as one pill to kill a toddler or an infant. So in conclusion, Lock them up. I think you guys are going to start noticing a pattern here. Lock up these medications. And again, make sure to ask guests, especially older adults, about what medicines they might be on. And if they're on any of these, make sure that they are secured away from the children. We're going to move to another case. So this one is a one-year-old who's brought into the emergency department in a coma after he took one pill off of his uncle's nightstand a few hours earlier. They're positive it was just one pill because he set out his nighttime medicines. And when we check the kid's blood sugar, as is usual with a kid who comes in in a coma, it's 15. And normal is anywhere between 70 and 100. So what could he have taken that just one pill would cause a coma and such a low blood sugar? This is a group of medications called the sulfonylureas, and these are medicines used to treat diabetes. Some examples are glipizide, glimepiride, and gliburide. Anybody in this room know anybody who's been on any of those medicines? Yeah? So what they do is they actually cause insulin secretion, which then causes hypoglycemia. So insulin secretion is a great thing if you have diabetes and you have really high blood sugar because the insulin is going to help take down your blood sugar. But if you're a toddler with low to normal blood sugar, it's going to plummet your levels. And I do want to just draw attention to the fact that this is a different category of medicines from metformin. Metformin is a very commonly used diabetes medication, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, and that does not not cause hypoglycemia, so if you're on metformin, you don't need to stress about it. The symptoms of overdose of a sulfonylurea include agitation, confusion, a fast heart rate, sweating, and then it goes all the way to seizures and coma. And again, this is because of the low blood sugar. The onset of these symptoms can be delayed up to several hours, and all of them last way more than 24 hours. So these children always need to be admitted to the hospital. From 2002 to 2009, there were 1,943 cases of sulfonylurea overdose reported to California, just our state, poison control in kids under six. So this is a very common poisoning. And I just want to draw your attention to a few things with this table. So again, not surprisingly, we see our peak here in the ages one to two and two to three that we know. But what's scary is that 84% of the children who had bad hypoglycemia had no symptoms. So they weren't agitated, they weren't sweaty, they weren't confused, they just had very low blood sugar that only was caught because they were in the hospital. And even scarier, the lowest values of blood sugar were between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. when they were asleep. So if you think about it, if this overdose got missed by a parent or guardian, they put the kid to bed, the kid might not wake up in the morning. So this is a very scary medication to have. Have around. Toxic dose of the sulfonylureas, one tablet. So in conclusion, I think you guys know what's coming. Lock them up. So these are very powerful medicines to treat diabetes. They're wonderful. And so having a parent or grandparent's diabetes under control is a good thing for a kid. You should be on these medicines, but if you are, make sure to lock them up. So if you've got any questions, sulfonylureas, please jot those down. 
And we're going to move on to another category called the leans. So this is a one-year-old who is brought in in full cardiac arrest to the emergency department after he got into his mom's purse and took out a tiny bottle, squirted himself in the mouth one time. So what could be something that a mom would have in her purse commonly that one little squirt could lead to full-on cardiac arrest? So this group of the leans um, is tetrahydrolazine and oxymetazoline, also known as visine and afrin. So these are common ocular and nasal decongestants, and they're actually very common poisoning. So there were 2011 exposures to these in 2013 alone. And the symptoms of the leans are low blood pressure, hypothermia, lethargy, stopping breathing, and even a coma. So the toxic dose is 1.25 to 2.5 milliliters for a guy Jake's size. So this is kind of a standard size bottle of Visine. That's less than a quarter of this bottle. So that could lead to his death. And I'm not sure if you've ever used these before, but they're not childproof at all. You just screw off the cap. So they're very easily found. What's also kind of interesting is that a kid might get an overdose from a parent giving them the medication. So if we all think back, if we've ever had an experience with a congested toddler, it's a terrible time for all parties involved. And you can see where a parent might say, let me just give him some Afrin to see if I can get him through the night. So when we dose ourselves with Afrin, we squirt the bottle upright as an adult might do. But again, if you're trying to give medications to a toddler, you can picture how you'd have to wrestle the kid down and shove the bottle in his nose and squirt it. And there was actually a study done looking to see what's the difference in dosing of medicine if you do the bottle upright versus at 45 degrees. So upright, you get about 30 microliters. So it's a very small dose. Just by turning the bottle to 45 degrees, you get about 30 times that amount of medication delivered. And so if that goes into the throat of the kid who's fighting you and they swallow it, bam, you've already gotten to your toxic dose. So my conclusion for this is don't use these medications in kids. Again, it's easy for me to say, I know that congestion is very difficult to have in the household, but they're far too dangerous and it's really easy to overshoot. Second of all, Lock them up. If you're using them for yourself, that's absolutely fine, but make sure that you keep them out of kids' reach. I'm going to move forward to another case. So this one is one I saw in Texas as a fellow. This was a six-year-old who came into the emergency department in severe respiratory distress after she drank something from a plastic water bottle. So the family was camping. They decided to store their lighter fluid in a clear plastic water bottle, and the young child, thinking that it was water, Picked it up, took a swig, and immediately started coughing, choking, and sputtering, and ended up needing to be admitted to the hospital for several days to get oxygen and breathing treatments. So this group of medications is, or of chemicals is called the hydrocarbons. So hydrocarbons are a very large group, and they encompass solvents, degreasers, fuels, lubricants, so things like gasoline and lighter fluid and kerosene. There are a lot of ways to get poisoned by hydrocarbons. I would say the most common and most dangerous is by choking or aspiration, but there's also ingestion, so swallowing, inhalation of the fumes, and actually you can get absorption through the skin. If you remember that graph that we looked at before, this is still in the top five killers of children under five, so this is a big deal. In 2010, there were over 40,000 hydrocarbon exposures reported to poison control, Majority were in boys, and a third of those exposures were in kids younger than five years old. So what were these? Vast majority were gasoline, as you can see, but also kerosene, lighter fluid, and lamp oil. And what's interesting is most of these poisonings occurred in the home, but many of the gasoline ones actually occurred at gas stations. So it was parents not paying attention. They're kind of fueling the car. They walk away. The kid picks it up and actually tries to drink gasoline. So children do very surprising things. Interestingly, but probably not super surprisingly, there's actually a peak in the late spring and summer months in hydrocarbon ingestions. And that makes sense because everybody's outside, you're mowing the lawn, you've got tiki torches, barbecues, campfires, and adults might not be paying very close attention to the kids when you're out at a party and it's nice and warm and sunny. So the symptoms of hydrocarbon overdose are choking and coughing being the most common, some trouble breathing, and some vomiting. And the reason why aspiration or choking on hydrocarbons is so dangerous is that these are very volatile chemicals. So just a little bit in the mouth is going to quickly turn into gas, get down into the pulmonary tree, and destroy the lungs. So it's very, very dangerous. 
A toxic dose is as little as a few milliliters, so far less than a sip that a person might accidentally take. So in conclusion, kids will try to drink gross things. For sure, we've all seen it. Be careful in the summer when kids are playing. Just kind of keep an eye on your barbecue, keep an eye on the tiki torches as you're having a good time with your friends. Just remember to watch the kids. And then lastly, lock them up. But this one, I think a lot of people might be a little more lax about this and kind of keep these chemicals on the floor of the garage or in a cabinet under the sink somewhere. These are very, very dangerous. And just because they look bad and smell bad does not mean a child's not going to try to drink them. And we're going to move on to another case that I saw not so, it was probably a few months ago. So this was a 14-month-old boy who he and mom were getting ready to leave the apartment. Mom set him down on the floor while she locked the door. And then she turned and out of the corner of her eyes, she thought maybe he put something in his mouth, but she looks and there's nothing in his mouth. So she goes on her way. And about an hour later, they're in the car and he's super sleepy. So she brought him to me. And sure enough, he had normal vital signs on his exam, but he was fast asleep and he required really vigorous stimulation. And with that, he would just open his eyes, look at me and go right back to sleep. And after pretty extensive testing, he turned up positive for methadone. So methadone is a very potent, very long lasting opioid medication. And he had found a pill on the floor and picked it up and ate it. So opioids are a group of medications that are either synthesized from or derived from a poppy or synthesized to mimic that chemical structure. They include lots of things that we've all heard of. So opium, heroin, morphine, dilaudid, fentanyl, codeine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, which is the ingredient of Vicodin and Norco, and methadone. So how many people in this room know somebody who has been prescribed or given one of these medications at some point? Right? Like, so lots of people. These are very ubiquitously used medicines, and they are a huge problem in the United States. So the death rate from opioids rose from 6.1 per 100,000 in 2009 to 13.8 per 100,000 in 2014. So in five years, the death rate more than doubled from these. More than 250,000 Americans have died from opioids in the last 20 years. And I'm sure all of you in the, in the press have read about the opioid epidemic. This graph is just looking at children nine and younger who are visiting the emergency department for opioid poisoning. And as you can see, steadily going up. I'm not really sure what this little decline is. It's a nice thing. But really, if you look from 2006 to 2012, there's been a dramatic leap. There are roughly 7,000 people every day treated in the emergency department for opioid misuse. And in 2011, 19% of all of that, those were kids. From 2006 to 2012, there are 928 emergency department visits for poisoning by opioids in kids younger than 18, and 62% of those were unintentional. So that's not our adolescents and teens dabbling with their drug use. This is little guys accidentally getting into medicines around the house. In fact, kids whose moms were prescribed an opioid, so the mom didn't even have to fill it, were 2.4 times more likely to overdose. And in this study, the mean age of child who overdosed was two years old. So these are really, really big problems going on everywhere in the United States. And the symptoms of opioid overdose, decreased respiratory rate, confusion and coma, and then you die because you stop breathing. So your respiratory rate slows and slows, then stops, and once your brain and heart don't have oxygen for very long, that's when you die. It's just like in the movies with a heroin overdose. So the toxic dose for these can be as little as one pill. And again, it really varies depending on what medicine we're talking about and what concentration, but absolutely can be just one. So I have a few conclusions about this one. First of all, think twice about filling that prescription if you have any kids that might be in your house. Of course, if you have a broken bone, you need to treat your pain and you deserve to feel comfortable. But if you have something a little low back pain, a headache, maybe don't fill the prescription for opioids. If you did need it and you're done now, make sure to dispose of your medicines properly and your pharmacy can help you get rid of your medicine safely. And then lastly, if you do decide to use them, lock them up. We're going to move on. So this one is a New Year's Eve tale. So a family had a wonderful party for New Year's Eve. Their toddler was the life of the party until they put him to bed at 9 p.m. All the guests left around 1.30 in the morning. The parents kind of tidied up. They think they put away most stuff. They go to bed. And at 8 in the morning, they're very surprised that the toddler hasn't yet come in to jump on their bed and wake them up. They go downstairs, and they find him passed out face down on the floor. 
So what did he do? He found a red Solo cup with this much cocktail left in it, drank it, and is now in a coma. So we're going to talk about ethanol, commonly referred to as alcohol. So ethanol is found in alcoholic beverages, but also lots of other things in the home. Cologne, aftershave, mouthwash, perfume, hand sanitizers, and medication elixirs. It prolongs the shelf life of liquid medicine, so it's pretty common. And this table, I know it can be a little bit hard to read, but some of these that I wanted to draw your attention to, Listerine is 26% alcohol. Some of these different colognes can be up to 100%. If we look for some of our different um, sanitizing sprays, like Lysol is about 25%, hand sanitizer 65%. So lots of things that we might have around the house in our bags, our purses, our cars actually have a lot of ethanol in them. And the symptoms of ethanol overdose, some of us may or may not have had an occasion to dabble with these symptoms, but they include nausea, vomiting, confusion, poor balance, be in a coma. And the interesting thing that's specific to children is hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. So what's very interesting is that toddlers at a blood alcohol level lower than the legal driving limit, so pretty low, can actually have profound hypothermia, hypoglycemia, and even coma. So they're highly susceptible to getting these effects from alcohol. The toxic dose depends on what we're drinking. So 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram of beer, four to six of wine, and one to two milliliters per kilogram of hard liquor. So what is that? So for Jake, that would be somewhere between 40 to 60 milliliters of wine, which would be about two of these medicine cups. So that is a fair amount, but if it was a sweet wine and he happened to like it, you could see that a baby could drink that much. The 10 to 20 milliliters of hard liquor is a very small amount. So a standard shot glass is actually 44 milliliters. So it's a quarter to a half of a standard shot glass. And you could see at a party that maybe a shot glass might be left out after mixing some drinks and a kid could very easily get into it. So in conclusion, be careful with alcoholic beverages. Lock up your bottles, but also at a party, if there are kids around, try to make sure that the drinks are held up high and that you clean everything up after a party. But also, be careful with other household products, your Listerine, your cologne, your hand sanitizer gel. All of these things could be potentially very dangerous to a small kid. So lock them up. So if you have any questions on ethanol, please take a moment, write them down. We're going to move on to another case. So this one is a 15-month-old who is brought in for vomiting and extreme fussiness after he ate a Tide Pod. So he and his mom were doing some laundry. He was sitting on the floor, and as she was transferring the laundry from the washing machine into the dryer, he pulled himself up and grabbed a brightly colored detergent pod off of the washing machine and ate it. So how many people here have used or seen these laundry detergent pods? Yeah, they're, they're pretty brightly colored, they're fun, they're attractive. They've been available in Europe since 2001, but not here until about 2012. And accordingly, in 2012 and 2013, there were over 17,000 calls to the Poison Control Center for exposures to these detergent pods. I do want to draw your attention to the fact that it was about 6,000 in 2012, and then it jumped up to 11,000 in 2013, so steadily rising. Again, not surprisingly, it's highest among one- and two-year-olds. There have been two reported deaths. 4.4% of kids end up getting admitted to the hospital, with 2.4% of those kids going to the ICU. And in this graph of incidents, we can see that we didn't really have anything until they came on the market, and then once they did, bam, tons and tons of cases. So these pods can be poisonous by ingestion, which is the most common way, so swallowing, but also if splashed into the eye or splashed onto the skin. And when they do their job, they easily dissolve when they're exposed to saliva. And they're actually the most commonly ingested household product. These pods make up 70% of detergent ingestions, which actually makes a whole lot of sense, right? They're bright colored, they're small, they look like candy, and it trying to picture a toddler picking up a container of detergent and trying to drink it. I mean, that's not very feasible, right? These are also the most dangerous because they're so highly concentrated that they can actually burn the mouth of a child. So the symptoms of overdose include vomiting, coughing, rash, drowsiness, and they can even lead to a hole in the esophagus or a perforation. So these are very dangerous. The toxic dose, one pot. 
So after that increasing incidence, Procter & Gamble, who manufacture Tide Pods, decided to change their packaging up a little bit. So they put a warning that said, do not eat. <laughs> it's very helpful. Um, they also pacified the package so that kids can't see into it, and they put a latch on there. But again, we talked about what child-resistant packaging does. It just slows the kid down. It does not stop the ingestion. So in conclusion, lock these guys up. But honestly, I would say if you have any kids younger than five going into your household, just don't use them. Use regular detergent until the kids get bigger. Um, if you have any questions on the pods, you can jot them down, but we're going to switch gears a little bit. How many people heard about this story where the marijuana candy accidentally intoxicated dozens of people after a quinceanera in the mission? Yeah. So we're going to talk about edible marijuana now. This is a very, uh, this is a problem that's definitely on the rise. So we're going to use Colorado as a case example. So in Colorado in 2000, medical marijuana was legalized, but it wasn't until 2009 that the Department of Justice stopped prosecuting people who sold it. So that was when it actually started to get going. And then in 2014, it became legal for recreational use. So accordingly, this is kids younger than nine that we're looking at. So these are cases, the light bar is poison center cases, and the dark bar is kids that actually came to the Colorado Children's Hospital. So we see it's happening, 2009, 2010, it's going up a little bit, and then as soon as it became legal for recreational use, exposures to children skyrocketed. And we can see that in comparison to the United States, which is in the bottom, that was rising too, but in Colorado, <laughs> it rose a lot faster, and we can expect that that's probably going to happen here as well. The median age of overdose was 2.4 years old. So again, not our teenagers and adolescents who are experimenting with drugs. These are little guys getting into stuff. And 48% of these known marijuana exposures were edible marijuana, which again makes sense. You know, a plant is a lot less appealing than a gummy bear or a brownie or a piece of cake. 36% of those kids ended up getting admitted to the hospital, with 21% of them going to the pediatric floor and 15% of them going to the ICU. The American Academy of Pediatrics has accordingly come out and they've taken a statement against legalization of marijuana, mainly because of their fear of these accidental effects towards small children. So marijuana gets its effect from THC, which can have stimulant, sedative, or hallucinogenic effects depending on the strain of marijuana, the dose, and the concentration. And again, these symptoms, some of us may or may not have had experience with these sort of symptoms, but they include pallor or paleness, bloodshot eyes, a fine tremor, imbalance, and some confusion ranging from the lethargic end all the way to the agitated end. The onset from an edible is somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour with a peak at two to three hours. So if you think about it, these symptoms are pretty nonspecific, just a little bit of altered mental status, and they happen hours later, which makes it very difficult for clinicians to figure out what might have happened to the kid since the time course is so delayed. The toxic dose, as you might imagine, really depends. So the concentration of a lot of these things, sometimes there might be one lozenge that has four doses embedded in it. Sometimes you might have a giant piece of cake that only has one dose. So it's sort of hard to say. Um, Child-resistant packaging is definitely an option. In California, Prop 64, which passed in November, does say that, one, we can't advertise directly to children. Two, you have to have specific labeling on the package. Three, there has to be child-resistant packaging, which, again, that doesn't do a whole lot. And then four, they're not supposed to look appealing to children, which we've established that children drink gasoline. So I don't really know how you're supposed to make an edible product for an adult that doesn't look appealing to a child, but that's what the proposition says. So in conclusion, I have no opinion on if you want to use them for your medicinal or recreational purposes in your home. That's absolutely fine. But if you're going to, make sure that you lock them up and keep them away from kids. And honestly, if you ever have kids coming around your home, really reconsider buying edibles that look at all appealing. And again, if you look more appealing than gasoline, it's going to be appealing to a child. All right. If you have any questions on marijuana, please uh, jot those ones down. And we're going to move on to another case. So this is a 10-year-old kid. This is a real case from the Midwest. It was published in the newspapers a few years ago. So this 10-year-old took some buckyballs, which are little round magnets, and put them on either side of her tongue to mimic a tongue piercing with her friends, walking around, looking real cool. And then she accidentally swallowed them. Not surprising. And then a few days later, she started having severe belly pain and vomiting and went to the hospital, ended up needing endoscopy, and then ultimately needed surgery. And I'm going to show you a really great 
gross picture. So anybody who's a little bit squeamish, this is not the time to look. So what we're looking at here, this is her appendix. And here we have the magnets that are sort of embedded in there. And over on this side, we see healthy, pink, shiny, happy appendix. And over here, we see gangrenous, dead, black, gross appendix. So what is it about magnets that make them so dangerous? If you swallow a single magnet, no problem. If you swallow multiple magnets that travel together, like a little stack, no problem. But if you swallow multiple magnets that are flying solo, kind of just going around your GI tract on their own, this is a big problem. And the reason why is that the magnets will attract each other through the intestines. They'll put pressure on the intestine wall until they cut off the blood supply and cause a hole. And that hole is a perforation in your intestine. And when that happens, the intestinal contents, or poop, will spill out into your abdomen, causing life-threatening and very rapidly progressing infection and illness. From 2003 to 2006, there were 20 cases resulting in serious complications. 19 of those kids needed surgery, and one kid died. And in a survey of pediatric surgeons, we have about the same rate. They reported 99 cases of magnet ingestion. 32% of those kids got an endoscopy, 65% of which were successful. That's when you put a camera in the mouth, take a look in the stomach and esophagus. 72% of those kids, though, ultimately needed surgery, and 9% of them needed long-term care, and one died. So again, in conclusion, don't buy magnets for kids, even tweens. These are far too dangerous. They're going to put them in their mouth, and they're going to swallow them. They're a lot more dangerous than they might seem. So if you've got any questions on magnets, feel free to jot those down. And we're going to move on to our last seemingly not too bad, but actually quite dangerous thing, button batteries. So button batteries, this is an exception to our rule in that ingestions are actually more common in ages four to eight. So we, all of our other things were the little tiny kids. These, for some reason, are the older children, and it's probably because they can actually open up a remote control or an app appliance and take the battery out. Kids with hearing aids are increased risk, which makes sense. They actually are carrying a button battery on their person at all times. And over the years, the number of cases has stayed constant, but injury and death have increased sevenfold. And that's because the batteries themselves are getting bigger with much higher voltage. So button batteries are toxic when they come into contact with a mucosal surface. So that's the lining of the nose, lining of the mouth, lining of the esophagus or the stomach. And what happens is that nice, wet, shiny mucosa bridges the positive and negative ends of the battery, and you start getting a current flowing between the battery. The current then starts generating free radicals, which kills the tissue. So I'm going to show another gross picture. This is a picture from endoscopy after a button battery burn. So what we see, this is esophagus. And on this side, we see healthy, pink, happy esophageal mucosa. And on this side, we see burned, charred mucosa. And as you might imagine, that does not heal well. So what ends up happening is scar tissue forms, and the child ends up getting strictures or narrowing in the esophagus that make it very difficult to pass saliva, much less pass food. If the button battery happens to be choked on and ends up sitting on the vocal cords, you can also have profound damage to the vocal cords. And most of the deaths that were reported were from an aortoenteric fistula. So what that is, the button battery travels through the intestine and erodes a hole in the intestine. Just so happens that that hole is overlying the aorta, which supplies all of your blood basically from here down. Once the hole goes into the aorta, all of the blood that's destined for your lower half of your body goes into your intestine and you die from a profound hemorrhage. However, if swallowed and if they make it past the esophagus, most of these will pass in 72 hours without a problem. However, if it's stuck in the esophagus, you need emergent removal. That whole process that we talked about with the free radicals starts after 15 minutes. So this is a very rapid process, and it needs medical attention immediately. This is so common that there actually is a national battery ingestion hotline that exists. This number is in the handout that's available online. So in conclusion... Button batteries are super dangerous, and a button battery stuck anywhere needs immediate removal. So if you have a small hint that maybe the child got into a button battery, maybe they swallowed it, I'm not sure, bring them into the emergency room anyway because they need an x-ray right away. Some of these children who have it sitting in their esophagus might not have any symptoms of it, so it's very important. 
And in our last few moments together, I am going to take advantage of a captive audience and give you a brief public service announcement because health and well-being of children is my life mission, so I care very deeply about this. First of all, this website I put into your handout, upandaway.org, and this is a CDC initiative to try to decrease those 60,000 emergency department visits every year. This has excellent tips on how to child-proof your home, store and dispose of medication safely. It's a great website, and it's very easy to navigate. Moving on to safety first. Yes, my family's laughing, so that's my life motto. So safety first. Um, I think we've emphasized enough that poisoning is a huge deal in kids of this age group. So have a high suspicion for poisoning if your kid starts acting weird. They weren't sick before, and now they're throwing up or looking kind of loopy. Think about a poisoning. And whether you know they're poisoned or you're suspecting it, don't ever induce vomiting. We don't want to do any ipecac, finger in the throat, none of that. If they vomit on their own, fine, but it's very dangerous to induce vomiting. And call the Poison Control Center, number 1-800-222-1222. That phone number is also in the handout, but it's a very important number to know. It's staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and if you make that phone call, you're going to have a toxicologist talk you through, is this dangerous? Do we need to wait and go to the emergency room and spend hours there, or is this something that we can manage at home? Second thing, helmets. Unrelated to poisonings, but I just got to tell you, I have seen so many preventable severe brain injuries and deaths of children that would have been completely prevented if the kid was wearing a helmet. So please, I implore you, any children in your life, kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, neighbors, if they're doing anything other than walking, so riding a bike, a scooter, skateboard, skiing, any of those kinds of things, make sure they wear a helmet. Even a ground-level fall just from standing up it can be catastrophic to a growing brain. So helmets. And then lastly, Close your windows. This seems like a weird thing, but especially in the San Francisco and in the East Bay, as it starts to warm up, we open our windows to get the bay breezes flowing, and kids topple out. So this is something we see very often in the warm months, which here tends to be October, but we see kids, and especially if you think about the windows in a lot of places, the older buildings, the ledge is about a foot and a half off of the ground, and so kids very easily just go and then they topple out. They don't even realize that they're at a window. So close your windows if you have kids. All right, so moving on to a summary. Now that you have endured this talk, you can name several common medications that are particularly dangerous to children. So who remembers what we talked about today? Can we name some medications that are dangerous to kids? Tylenol, aspirin, good. Yeah, the hypoglycemics, excellent. Anything else? Hydrocarbons. Good. Okay, guys, this is very good. So we got aspirin, acetaminophen, the blockers, the leans, sulfonylureas, hydrocarbons, opioids, and ethanol. Now you can describe the risks of laundry detergent pods and edible marijuana in pediatric patients. You can discuss other risky exposures in the home and how to prevent life-threatening illness or injury for kids. And I think this kind of boils down no magnets, no button batteries, helmet always, close the windows, and lock them up. And so now, hopefully, you've become more aware of substances in your home that are potentially hazardous to children and what makes them so dangerous. So I thank you very much for your time. I have my email address up here as well as on your handouts. And now I'm really excited to hear any questions that you guys might have. Thank you so much. Yes. Great. So uh, the question was kind of how has the Ipecac use changed, that that used to be a thing that was just standard after an ingestion. And so the problem with Ipecac is that once you give Ipecac to a kid who's been poisoned and you induce the vomiting, you're at such a high risk of them choking on their vomit again, especially if they already have a little bit of confusion or mental status changes, that the risk of aspirating their vomit is actually higher than the benefit that you get from Ipecac. Also, lots of medications, especially caustic ones like the high hydrocarbons or like the detergent pods, they can burn you coming back up. So it's actually nice that they're down in the acidic environment of the stomach and not coming back up your esophagus and eroding it. But that was a great question. Yeah, Ipecac is totally phased out and is not used anymore. Your department had a course like this about a year and a half ago. Dr. Brown came and uh, I think he's in your department. Mm -hmm. he, he advised everyone to schedule periodic home inspections. 
where we would look at our home as a hazardous uh, place, and the same way we would with a car, and take a proactive way. You had all those checklists on there. You mentioned maybe DPH or somebody had ones that are more standard, but he just said that we have to really take charge. This isn't something you can farm out to someone else. This is our responsibility to do that. But do you, um, do you advise that kind of activity? Yes, and it's so the question was um, that it was mentioned in a previous course about a year and a half ago to periodically take a, a look through your home and go through a checklist and make sure that it's safe for children. And I absolutely do recommend doing that. It's very difficult to do because as adults, we can't fathom why on earth would someone want to drink cologne? I mean, it smells bad, it wouldn't taste good, but they do. And so just trying to stop for a second and look at the world as if you were two feet tall and and everything that had bright colors was potentially candy to you. So if you look around and you see all of that, my goodness, there's a lot of things that are available to children. And I recognize this when Jake came to stay with us over Thanksgiving, that my home is not childproofed at all. I don't have children. I never have children in my house. And so it's actually a pretty dangerous place. And I didn't think of my house as being a dangerous place. But it is important if you have um, children, grandchildren, neighbors, anybody coming into your home to periodically just take a look and be sure that everything is safe. Absolutely. Any other questions? Oh, yes. I was just going to ask if, uh, if there's any button battery that's safe. Is there a safe voltage below which they're okay? <laughs> is, there, is there anything that can be done to sort of get, just eliminate it? It sounds horrible. Yeah, it's a really good question. So he's asking if there's any voltage of button battery that's safe. And unfortunately, no. Of course, the lower voltage you go, the less dangerous that it is. But again, any time that you have current flowing from one end to another of a battery, it can be very dangerous. And the reason, one of the reasons why button batteries are more dangerous than standard other ones is that you just, the way that the other batteries go, they're much less likely to become lodged in a, in a surface end-to-end, -end, whereas a button battery, the end-to-end -end is the two flat parts, and so children like to swallow coins as well, and coins get embedded in their throats and their stomachs all the time, but that's much less of a big deal. That we can just go and fish out. But this, if it goes down your esophagus, no matter which way the battery turns, you're going to have a positive and a negative terminal contacting the mucosa, and it's very dangerous. So I... I would agree with you, especially since it's such a common thing that there's a national battery ingestion hotline, like that this is a thing that people know about, that you would think we'd be phasing out on those things. But um, I think those who are manufacturing appliances, it's probably the cheapest and most efficient way to have the energy. So did you have a question? Most of the items you listed are manufactured. Are herbal products uh, hazardous inherently, or are they exempt from this? So that was a, another great question. So the question was, are herbal supplements and herbal medications exempt from this? And absolutely not. And in fact, they're a little bit more dangerous because they're not regulated at all by the FDA. So herbal supplements and, and herbs and things that you can buy at health food stores or at Target or you make yourself... We don't really know what's in them and how potent they actually are. Also, if there are additives like lead or other sorts of things in them. So, no, they're not, they're not benign. And I, I didn't include them because the list of dangerous herbs is exhaustive. But, yes, they are very dangerous as well. Is that herbs? Okay. Good. So Dr. Olson will cover that for you. Yes, ma'am. I would say yes. That I, you know, it's hard to get a study on that, right? Because you're not going to give kids with asthma hydrocarbons and those without <laughs> asthma hydrocarbons. But um, absolutely. So, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't repeat the question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the question was: Are children with pre-existing lung diseases, such as asthma, more susceptible to the effects from hydrocarbons? And I would say absolutely, um, especially any children who have decreased pulmonary reserve. So any children, premature children with chronic lung disease, kids who might have had a transplant or other sorts of things where at their best they're not performing the way another equal age child would, if they lose any square footage of their pulmonary area, they're going to have a big problem. So absolutely those kids are at a higher risk. And the problem is because this is chemical damage down to the molecular level, things like albuterol or steroids aren't going to help. So the damage is mechanical 
mechanical and destroys it rather than being a muscle spasm like an asthma. So these are big deals. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, guys, thank you so much. And again, there's a handout available online with the slides that has a lot of the references I talked about. So thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.